Open the scriptures with me, please, to Second Corinthians chapter 12. We'll continue in our series, which was just about drawing to a close. God willing, we'll preach today and God willing, next Sunday, and we'll close this book. Second Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll commence at verse 14. As you see, the title of my message today, it's time to make an appointment. I'll put it like that because I try and sort of make this as practical as I can, even though this section is specifically dealing with an issue that Paul was having with the Corinthians. And sometimes it's difficult to um, get down and relate to a present-day circumstance. And so I try and make my uh, titles and also my headlines, headings, Uh, applicable. So let's read the word of God. Follow with me as I read from verses uh, 14, actually I'll pick up, um, chapter 12. And we're going to read right through the end of verse 4 of chapter 13. Here for this third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours but you. For children are responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will, gladly, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Verse 19. All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality and sensuality which they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time and though now absent I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well that if I come again I will not spare anyone since you are speaking for proof of Christ, of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you but mighty in you. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. May God bless his reading, the reading of his word uh, to us this morning. 
It's time to make an appointment. You know, life is never without its disappointments. It's like James wasn't really happy about having to take that baby out just recently. <laughs> but um, it's never without disappointments. And, and from time to time, we need to make appointments in order to settle, to settle some of these unsettling matters. And usually on such occasions, we experience tension and nervousness because the reception and even the outcome of such meetings that we make are completely unknown. I remember once, my brother and I needed to make such an appointment with a company manager as to why a contracting deal had gone sour We need to speak to him face to face as to why he was not honouring his obligations, what the hiccup was, what the problem was in the contract that had been drawn up. We'd written letters. You had to do that in those days. It wasn't any email. We'd written letters. We'd made phone calls. But the matters were never really ever dealt with seriously and openly and honestly. So we made an appointment. We needed to sort this out once for all, face to face. So arrangements were made, but but there was no knowing of what kind of reception or what the outcome of that meeting would be. You can understand that, right? Well, this is a similar kind of situation that the Apostle Paul was in with some of the Corinthian church who was still out of sorts with the gospel and with Paul himself as an apostle, a minister of the gospel, sent from God. You see, earlier a good proportion of the church had repented and had been reconciled, as we've already been hearing this morning, been reconciled to God and even to Paul himself. And he was overjoyed at that. Remember, we looked at that when we saw chapter 7. Paul was was taken out of his state of depression, as it were, and he was overfilled with joy at this report from Titus of the repentance that had taken place in the Corinthian assembly. But you see, Paul was not naive. He suspected that there may be still some stragglers and hangers-on that it was still not repentant. And these are the ones that he's addressing here. These are the ones that he's primarily focusing these last chapters from chapters 8 or at least 9 onwards to. So Paul needed to visit them. Letter writing was all done here. He needed to face up to these possible recalcitrant believers who were in Corinth. And even if necessary, if necessary, use his apostolic authority and collide with them over their prideful issues and ongoing disloyalty to the gospel and also to the apostle himself. So here Paul pens his last comments. He cuts to the chase and he highlights the main reason for this personal apostolic appointment. Now you may say, okay, big deal. What on earth has that got to do with us? 
what can we gain from it? I believe that we can learn from this as we look at Paul's example of going to such an appointment, making and keeping such an appointment, how he confronted and what was on his mind prior going to them. That's very, very important. And I believe we can learn from this when we have to make such appointments ourselves. And we will from time to time, or we need to. Or we'll be those wimps who put our head in the sand and pretend something serious has never happened. That happens too, sad to say, right? And issues are never dealt with. So let us humble ourselves this morning and be obedient to the word of God as God teaches us through his word. Plan such appointments to bring about reconciliation. Pete's already given us a good insight into what reconciliation is about. We see this in verses 14 to 19. Plan such appointments to bring about reconciliation. We often don't do that, do we? On such appointments, we'll plan usually to give him a piece of my mind, to let him know where I stand on this issue. We're prideful and can be arrogant and putting out our opinions and, and getting our peace out there to make sure he understands it. Well, that wasn't Paul's beef. He planned this appointment to bring about reconciliation. This was at the forefront of his thinking. It was the whole motive behind this third visit. He longs for genuine reconciliation. And here in verse 14, the appointment is made, and what Paul does is he reassures the Corinthians that when he comes... Just to make sure they get it clear, his financial policy that he's had in the past will be the same. It will not be altered. He will not expect or ask a stipend or a salary or a gift, financial gift from them. He won't do that. He doesn't want to be a burden to them. He wants them, not their money. That's what he says here. As we've discussed this in detail in the past, he had every right to. Other apostles did. That was okay. But for this specific church... He chose not to. As a matter of fact, he uses then the family analogy, and we talked about this last time we were together, of how parents have the responsibility to give their all for the well-being of their young children. It's not the other way around. And so that's how the apostle looks upon these Corinthian believers. He looks upon them as his children in the faith even though they were were questioning his integrity and and maligning his apostleship and and his character. This is what had been going down. And he, uh, he, he had the inkling, he had the idea that there were probably still some of them doing that. And so he addresses them. So how does he do that? He expresses his sacrificial love for them in spite of their disloyalty and hard attitude toward him. You know that? A bit like parents, you know, whose love toward their rebellious teenager stays and persists in spite of their dodgy conduct. Paul says that he will gladly spend and be expended for your souls. That's what it means. In other words, he he willingly gave his absolute all for their spiritual well-being, for their souls, and, and no cost was too much. But for all his sacrificial love, 
there was precious little in return. It wasn't reciprocal. And so he says in verse 16, be that as it may, be that as it may. In other words, despite their aloof, your aloofness, despite the coldness and the lack of affection, Paul continues to love them sacrificially. In spite of the fact that his accusers were suggesting, and this is what they were suggesting, that he was deceitful and a crafty fellow. He mentions that himself in real good sarcastic irony. They were suggesting that he was a deceitful and crafty fellow by the, sense, by the way that, he, that we believe that you are dipping into the Jerusalem fund and helping yourself. That's what they were accusing him of. That's what, they, that's what the rumour was going around and people were sticking to it. But in spite of these false accusations, there's an attack on his personal integrity. Paul still loved them. You see that? He still loved them. So what does Paul do? He reminds them not only of his own stand. When I come to you again this third time, it'll be the same as before, no financial assistance. And also be reminded, he said, that when I ever sent any others to you, the last one would have been Titus, but there had been others as well, and a team of them, none of his fellow workers, including Titus, They were never a financial burden to the Corinthians. So he wanted to make sure that was straight and clear. And then he talks about, then he says, the special collection of Jerusalem. You know, it was only for Jerusalem only. That's always ever it was. A special collection. He'd been going up and down through the land of of Macedonia, Achaia, and, and, and collecting a special fund for the needy and destitute saints in Jerusalem. And many churches had given to this. And it was for Jerusalem only. It was not to be used as a lucky dip for the team to help themselves in. But in spite of all this, Paul was being accused and maligned of being deceitful and crafty and helping himself. Now that's really harsh, right? You imagine that. You're doing something wholeheartedly for the Lord and everything is above reproach and yet fellow believers come and suggest that you are a thief. You know, of all the wicked things I was thinking about this, of all the wicked things that bring shame and where stigma sticks like mud, fraud and stealing has got to be near the top of the list. And sad to say it's rife in our culture. But it is more shameful, especially when it's self-helping from a fund that has been willingly given by people whose hearts have been moved to help the poor and needy. This happens all the time. It was on the telly there a while back, someone ripping some system off or the silly armies and going helping themselves to to all the gifts that are put out on the street. It happens in many ways, in corporate level and right down to more incidental things. Thieving fraudsters are caught from time to time. And generally speaking, people hate and despise such low-down thievery, generally speaking. Well, this is what the apostle was being accused of and held in question over. 
You see, the false teachers had spread these rumors that this is what Paul was doing. In other words, because he's doing this, how can he be a true, genuine apostle of God? But what was the response to this untruthful, stigmatizing suggestion? What was his response? He continued to love his false accusers sacrificially. He did not major on defending himself here like we might do. This was slander. This was defamation of character material here. But he wasn't off to the first lawyer to, to take, take them to court. Sad to say like some Christians do, which they're been forbidden to do when it comes to brother against brother. Even his letters and, and his prior visits to Corinth were not primarily about defending himself, no, against such accusations. He was willing to die for these people. He wanted above all else through the power and the word of Christ to bring about what? To bring about reconciliation. To see their faith in Christ and in the gospel be strengthened and to grow and to deepen. That's what his primary goal was. Folks, this morning, the bedrock of any appointment that seeks reconciliation to the Lord and and reconciliation of others, maybe to yourself, is when you continue to practice and demonstrate genuine sacrificial love. If genuine reconciliation is sought, there will be a deep driving motive to build others up in the faith. That should be a first priority. Certainly not getting my point across or getting my opinion across or just making sure they know how I feel about it. That's not a first priority. I wonder why this is a first priority. Well, the Apostle Paul wasn't meeting something new. He was only doing what Jesus did, right? Because this is what he did do. Remember, they falsely accused Jesus. He even got people to come in this trial to tell lies and etc. about him. They falsely accused him. And they hated him without a cause, the scripture tells us. And yet even in his darkest hour, This text has already been cited this morning. Even in his darkest hour, he could cry from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He gave his all. His sacrificial love on the cross was an action of total abandonment of himself for the glory of his Father, so that sinners might be what? Might be reconciled to God. Paul reminds us of the same ministry obligation, by the way, that we have. We are reconcilers. Believers in Jesus are reconcilers. That's our ministry calling. 2 Corinthians 5.19 That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespass against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There you have it. We're called to be reconcilers, folks. Reconcilers of those who may even be well out of sorts with us like these folks were with the Apostle Paul. But what did Paul do? Did he cut him off and say, oh, whatever? No. He continued to love them. He never gave up. 
He continued to go all out to see his beloved Corinthians reconciled and to be built up in the faith. The second plan was to plan such appointments seeking genuine repentance. See this in verses 20 to 21. When such an appointment is on our schedule, often there is an element of fear, an element of trepidation over how it might go down. And I'm sure you can understand all that. Sometimes the fear can be so great that we don't make the appointment or perhaps don't keep the appointment. And that's not right either. The fear we can experience is often this. How well will we stand our ground? Or how well will I stand my ground? Or how well will I be able to convince the other party, the other people of their shortcomings and my virtues? That's how often... We approach such meetings, isn't it? In other words, we are more afraid of how we ourselves will come out at the other end. We can go into this kind of appointment with a, with a self-focused concern rather than a concern for others and God's glory. But that's not how the Apostle Paul focused this appointment. You note in verse 20 and 21, he says twice, I am afraid. Who would ever think the great apostle would be afraid? He was. As he says here, I am afraid. In other words, there's real concern. As I mentioned before, he still had some lingering misgivings about the integrity of this revival that had been reported back by Titus in chapter 7. In other words, he was asking himself, no doubt, was it for real or was it show by all of them? Was it permanent or was it superficial? And so this nagging question raised real concerns for the apostle. Hence the first reason for Paul's concern is all about how will he find the Corinthians when he visits them, when he keeps his appointment? How will he find them spiritually? You see, his concern was not for himself but rather finding these Corinthians, the horror of them still, of some of them still dabbling in anger and temper and disputes and slander and gossip and arrogance and disturbances, that there might be division and relational issues in the church. That was his fear, that was his concern of finding that still going on. The very thing that had marked the church right back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he feared that it still might be marking some in the church. He was afraid that their living and conduct might prove that there had been no genuine repentance like he wished. And if that was the case, if that was the case, they would find Paul not to be as they wished. We see that in verse 20. He had a fear of finding them not as he wished, but if that was the case, if there was unrepentant sin in the camp, then on this third visit, they would find him not as they wished. We have that. In, he's, he's already mentioned something of this before on another occasion in 1 Corinthians 4.21. As he says, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's a bit like when I misbehaved as a child. 
And I used to quite a bit because I can remember I was a sinner that needed to be saved. And I can well remember and often hear my mother scold me with these words when things got too tough for her. Go to your room and wait till your father comes home. That was a fearful thing, believe you me. That was punishment in itself, the waiting, right? Why was that? Simply this. You see, my appointment with my father would not be one where he would find me as he wished and also would be an appointment where I would certainly meet my father, not as I wished. So Paul being the father figure here, right? He's the father figure. He, he was afraid what he might find. He was concerned about finding the Corinthians living unholy, unrepentant lives. And might I say, just as a little footnote here, any pastor or shepherd worthy of, his of that title like the Apostle Paul will have a passionate concern for their people in that they are living holy and sanctified and repentant lives. And so, folks, don't think repentance is one of those things that happened when you became a Christian. We should be living repentant lives every day. I'll tell you right here now, I sin every day and I need to repent before the Lord every day. And dare I say it, if you're not, life, as even as a believer, is not characterised by repentance and confession of sin, there's something drastically wrong. But Paul also had another fear or a concern which really shows his bond of love toward these recalcitrant believers. This is seen in verse 21. I fear, he says, that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practised. As I said before, the wise and discerning apostle had good reason to be afraid that these sins of impurity and immorality and sensuality, the, he, he had reason to believe and the reason to be afraid that the sins of the culture were still the sins in the church to some degree. Even though he had earlier rebuked and instructed them and, and even dealt specifically with this kind of sin. You go back to 1 Corinthians, you will see that. He was now deeply concerned that some who had sinned this way in the past may still be unrepentant and carrying on the sinful practice. He was concerned that that might be the case. And so now we can ask, yes, well, how did this affect Paul? Why was it his problem? Let me put it like this to help you answer that question. We're going back to the family analogy that Paul, by the Spirit of God, has used already. You see, as a loving parent of your children, just like Paul was of the Corinthians, he nurtured them. And as a loving parent of your children, you nurture your children, you train them, you pour your life into them, into those formative years. And probably by about 17 or 18, they're adults, they make up their own mind, they cut their own path, right? Some try to think it's a lot earlier than that. We need to get it for 13, but no way. 
And so your purpose is that they become mature, wise, discerning adults who love Christ and heed his commands and live a life that honours and glorifies him. That's your goal. That's your purpose. That's what we all want for our children. It should be, right? But some, as you know, that's not always how it turns out. Some of our children rebel. They seem to have completely ignored all your input. Your training and nurture has seemingly gone right out the door. It hasn't made any impact. They choose a pathway of unrighteousness when they have known the pathway of righteousness from when they were a knee-high or grasshopper. Now, how do you think that kind of a result would affect you? Can I suggest that you would feel that you have failed as a parent? You'll feel the humiliation as others see and know that all your efforts to raise your child have not worked. Your parenting and counsel have failed and fallen on deaf ears. And in that situation you feel the weight of your failed responsibility as a parent deeply. But that's not all. That's not all. You will also be humbled before God. And you will deeply mourn over the disobedient and sinful pathway of your rebellious child. Yes, you know that God will sovereignly and providentially work out his purposes and all this, but that still does not diminish the humiliation and the mourning as you wear the blame of their sin squarely on your shoulders. You cannot help, and I know this, folks, because I've been there. And this is where the Apostle Paul, the mighty Apostle, was in relation to his beloved children and the faith in Corinth. This humbling and humiliating experience of unrepentant sin in the church, it can suck the life out of any pastor, it can be heartbreaking and distressing and even drive a pastor right out the church. It can. And so this is what Apostle Paul was afraid of. That his credibility as an apostle, a pastor of this church, the one he had founded and spent two years nurturing, The idea of that being marked in any way by unrepentant sin brought upon him deep shame and mourning. Because he loved them. You see, the Apostle Paul took seriously the witness and the testimony of the local church. He's already studied to the Corinthians. He says, you are my letter, known and read by all men, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. He knows God is sovereign over all, including this very appointment that he's about to keep. He knows people are responsible for their own sins, but he never washed his hands of them. He never had an attitude, okay, I've done what I can, the ball's now in your court, go your own way. No, no, that wasn't his attitude. Easy to have though, isn't it? Easy to have. He never cut them off. He never said, I'm all done here. Do what you want. Nor was keeping this appointment motivated by by anger and outrage. 
How dare my children disobey me and the word of God and go against all they've taught them. It was never motivated by that. In other words, when he came to them a third time, he would not get up in that Corinthian pulpit and pounded away in frustration and anger. No, he would not do that. No, his appointment with them would be shrouded in deep mourning on his part if there was unrepentant sin in his children in the faith. And because of this possibility, you see, he didn't know the outcome. He didn't know the reception. But it was a possibility. He had this lingering doubt. Because of this possibility, he was afraid. Therefore, his appointment at Corinth was undergirded with a sincere call to repentance, even at this very late stage. After all, that's what God wants, right? For us to have repentant hearts. Remember how King David, man after God's own heart, how he sinned immorally with, with that woman he saw, and had a man killed, took Nathan the prophet to draw his attention to the matter, and Nathan said, Thou art the man. What did King David say? I have sinned before God. And out of that he wrote a psalm, Psalm 51, in response to that. And he said, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. My dear people, because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation where we long to see people reconciled to God and Christ by his grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, whether it be the unsaved or whether it be Christians or believers, we must have undergirding our ministry a deep longing for genuine repentance. I wonder if that's how we face and anticipate any such appointment. It should be because God has promised gracious and complete forgiveness to those who repent. And that's what really matters, right? John 1, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when it's all said and done, that's what really matters. You're either forgiven or unforgiven. And we want to be forgiven by God. And to be forgiven, there must be repentance. And that means a change of mind that will be evidenced in a change of actions, a change of lifestyle. May such meetings be undergirded with a longing for repentance. And finally, plan such appointments acknowledging God's final authority. We see this in the first four verses of chapter 4. You see, in anticipating this appointment, Paul had voiced his overall longing for reconciliation in order that these believers might be built up in the faith and he'd also voiced his fears that he might find the church marked by unrepentant sin which would bring shame and deep grief, therefore the dire need for them to genuinely repent. Now here he reminds them that although this third appointment was still about their reconciliation and repentance, this third appointment would carry some apostolic teeth, so to speak, if that was necessary. In other words, his first two visits would equate to the necessary was He had already visited them a couple of times originally, and then uh, that, that hurtful visit that we spoke, we talked about earlier on when we were in our messages, 
He'd already visited them a second time. And so, the, and there had been people visiting them. The necessary witnesses had taken place according to the Old Testament law. Not that he had to keep by that, but he wanted to be above reproach. But charges of sin had been brought against them and that had been given witness to. But now this third appointment. If there was still unrepentant sin, owing to all the witnesses and the visits and the people, now this third appointment. Having met all the requirements of the, law, of the law regarding sin in the camp, if nothing changed, if there was still unrepentant sin, Paul would come down on them with all the apostolic authority given to him by God. In other words, this section clearly tells us that the time of grace and mercy and patience was over. If there remained unrepentant sin in the assembly when he arrived for this third appointment, there will be no more warnings, there will be no more rebuking, there will be no more pleading. Paul would not spare anyone. They would not find Paul as they wished or to their liking, as we have in verse 20 of this chapter, chapter 12. Just like a good and faithful parent Paul could not let his children go on in a state of rebellious disobedience. You can call it, if you like, in our modern day, he was willing to demonstrate some tough love. In order to bring about their reconciliation and repentance. You see, if discipline was necessary when he arrived, he would not hold back in using it. That's what he's saying here. He does not want to use this authority. He doesn't really want to use it to protect the church from impurity. We have that down in verse 10. Verse 10 says, For this reason, of chapter 13, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord has given me for building up and for not tearing down. He doesn't want to use the severity. He doesn't want to use this discipline. He doesn't want to use the rod. But he use it, he will, if unrepentant sin is found. You see, Paul was being accused and earlier on of being a man with all talk and no action. You know, writing all these letters and stuff, backwards and forwards. Yeah, it sounds all good, but when it comes to face-to-face, you're a wimp. No doubt this was stirred up by the uh, false teachers. You see, they, the, the Corinthians seemed to have missed the lesson of his authority when he instructed the church. Way back in 1 Corinthians, they seemed to have missed this point. You know, when, the, when he instructed church, he, he said, he said to, about a certain one who ha, had committed gross sin with a member of the church, with, with, with his um, father's wife, I think it was. Something, yeah. He said, hand one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Remember that? That's what Paul's indictment, that's what Paul's apostolic judgment came down. In other words, this is what he said, excommunicate the sinful, unrepentant man in order that the whole assembly may not become corrupted. A little leaven, leaven of the whole lump. One, one rotten apple in a box of good ones will send all the others rotten. So chuck them out, put them out. Hand them over for Satan. This is what he says. Hand them over to Satan so that Satan might inflict upon him sickness and disease either till he dies or until he is reconciled to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what that means. 
That obviously missed that. Peter also has this apostolic, had its apostolic authority to discipline. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They thought they could get away with something by telling what they may have thought was a white lie, but they lied to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias came in, dropped dead. Within hours, his wife came in, dropped dead. Same day, buried the same day. Don't mess around with the authority of God. The point here is that the Corinthians are demanding more proof than that Christ was speaking through Paul. They wanted to see the miraculous manifestation of this divine claim. They wanted to see his authority being miraculously manifested. They completely missed the point that the power of Christ was and, in, and manifested in weakness. And we've spent a number of sessions on that. Paul's authority was manifested in his weakness and hence his, all his boasting was in his weakness. Humanly seeing, seemingly weakness. But Paul's meekness, his patience, his pleading toward them was, it was misjudged as a weakness. These, these, these people were treading on, on dangerous ground here. They seemed to have missed the point that Christ himself was crucified in weakness. In his incarnation, he was born of a woman and, and, and in humility, he, he humbled himself, was found in fashion as a man and his whole life's ministry had nowhere to lay his head. His whole life's ministry was one of weakness. But look at the outcome. He lives forevermore because of the power of God. Corinthians were really hung up on this. Paul has to remind them it's by the foolishness of preaching that we come to know Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ and have faith in Him. It's not by great rhetoric and, and, and cleverness, like some were suggesting. And so Paul reminds them of the seemingly weakness of Christ but of God's power in him. And they did not realize it, but when Paul spoke to them, they should have realized it. It was Christ himself speaking to them. They were treading on dangerous ground, and Paul responds and says, if, you find un if I find unrepentant sin when I visit, you may get more proof of Christ speaking in me than you bargained for. Paul was planning his appointment knowing that he had the authority and power of God with him to do what was right if it was needed. It's a bit like Jesus, you know, when he first made, he had an appointment with this world from eternity past. He had an appointment at his incarnation, right? At the exact right time he came and was born of a woman. In all his weakness he lived and died as a lamb that was led to the slaughter. But we know on the authority of God and his word, when Jesus keeps his next appointment with this world, he will come in power and authority to judge sin forever. Amen? Amen. My dear people, when we are faced with similar appointments in life, remember this. Plan for genuine reconciliation to God and others as a desired outcome. 
plan for genuine repentance as being the only vehicle that brings about true reconciliation. Plan knowing that you have the absolute authority for life and godliness in the scriptures of truth and any disobedience to the authority can well line us up for the disciplining hand of God and we don't want to go there. Let's trust and obey him. Thank you. Shall we stand while I close with a word of prayer and and a benediction? Father in heaven, we do give thanks today for the word of truth. We thank you for the study that we have just about completed in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Thank you for reminding us that that you have reconciled us to yourself and it was through repentance and faith that we have been made right with God. Help us, Father, as believers to live repentant lives, to not to be prideful or anyway and arrogant, but, Lord, just to trust in you. Now the peace of God who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.